With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Blog Talk Radio. Hello and welcome to Leading Edge Love Radio. This is your host, Sumati Sparks, the open relationship coach at sumatisparks.com. And today we have as our guest Amber DiPietra. She is an intimacy and sensuality coach with a focus on people with chronic pain and disabilities. And she is in an open relationship with two Bay Areas, the Tampa Bay Area and the San Francisco Bay Area. Welcome to the show, Amber. Thank you. So glad to have you here. I'm really looking forward to talking about these topics with you. Um, Let's start by unpacking the terms intimacy and sensuality. You call yourself an intimacy and sensuality coach. So can you tell us what you mean by that? Yeah. So um, my background is as a, a sexological body worker and somatic sex educator um, but with intimacy, I mean a whole range of um, the way uh, people are intimate in relationships, but also intimate with themselves, knowing their body, body awareness, um, and similarly, sensuality, uh, which to me is body knowing, knowing of your senses sensory awareness. So a lot of times in our culture, we use intimacy and sensuality as just euphemisms for sex, Um, but I believe it's more nuanced than that and speaks to very uh, specific types of knowing. Um, The connection got a little bad. Can you repeat the last line you said? Um, You said a lot of people use intimacy and sensuality as terms for sex, but then can you say the rest of what you said about that? Yes, but in our culture, a lot of times uh, intimacy and sensuality are used euphemistically to just mean sexual acts, Um, but I um, don't think of them at all in that way. I think that they're very specific types of knowing, knowing oneself and knowing the other. Uh huh. So intimacy is more like on an emotional level where you're um, really being seen by the other, right? Yes. And sensuality is more. You were talking about kind of all all of your senses and an awareness of your body. Yes. Mhm. Uh huh. And so, do you teach people to distinguish those things in your body work? Yes, um, so it, it, um, I do. I, um, you know, began with a number of exercises for how one experiences being in their body, how, what level of intimacy one has with their own body, and, um, and go from there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it always starts with ourself, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. All right. So you call your practice the body poet 
poetic. Can you explain what that means? Yeah, so my originally, um, my background was as a writer and an artist. Um, and then as I moved on to do social work and advocacy for people with disabilities, I spent a lot of time um, bringing creative communication skills and also practical communication skills, um, teaching people to have a voice and, and you know, to, to speak their authentic voice. Um, and that has just carried over to my work with intimacy and um, sensuality and uh, sexuality as well um, in terms of communicating, uh, speaking about yourself authentically, finding creative ways to speak about your desire and your body. Mm-hmm. Um, kind of finding your voice, and our voice can be symbolic, like different parts of our body can have their own voice, right? Yes, definitely. So we we lack so much of a language uh, for our bodily, so, you know, we lack a, a language to say um, how we experience gravity in our legs, every, you know, people. Um, uh, physicalities are all different and how we experience, um, you know, concern or worry in our stomachs. And so there's, you know, just real nuanced um, need for uh, more and more acute language to express our body. Mm -hmm. Right, right. Like I think that I sometimes I talk to different parts of my body. Like I say, if, if my um, stomach could talk right now, you know, if I have butterflies in my stomach and if it could talk, what would it say? So I kind of think of when you, when you say finding our voice, I think like, oh yeah, I can find my voice, not just from my words and my language, but um, from different parts of my body as well. It's cool. Um, I was looking on your website and you talked about um, being, when you said you had a background as an artist and you called yourself a community practice artist. I'm not familiar with that term. Can you define that? Yeah, so um, you know, the type of uh, work that I do often communities like folks in the disability community or, um, you know, adults at a senior center, for instance, or... Um, I'm also a sex worker rights organizer and try to do um, artistic and creative actions that express different social justice issues and bring out the, the real lived experience of people in these different communities. Uh-huh. Oh, I have to sneeze. Sorry. Oh, it went away. Okay. Oh, there was kind of a strange sound. I'm not sure what that was, but we'll we'll go forward and see if it's okay. Um, okay, so um, I really liked, I wanted you to be on the show because I liked that you focus on working with people with disabilities and chronic pain, and I'm assuming that you're working with this population with regard to um, their issues around sexuality and how to integrate um, their disabilities and chronic pain into their, their sex life? Did I get that right? Or are you, are you working with people in more of a general way? 
Well, both. You know, and I should first uh, specify that I am a person with multiple disabilities. I've been disabled. Um, and so the ground of my experience, and then I, as I became an adult, I um, was a community organizer and social justice advocate for people with disabilities and have worked in various um, government and nonprofit settings to um, help empower peers with disabilities. Um, so in doing that work now, in terms of sexuality, um, is that... I'm sorry, I'm sorry to interrupt you, Amber, but our connection is not very good. I might need you to take it off speakerphone. Okay. Because the quality of the recording is not going to be very good, and you're not going to want to use it. So is that okay if you um, take it off speaker? Sure. Is that better this way? Oh, so much better, so much better. Thank you so much. Okay, so you're saying about sexuality and disabilities, so um, I um, should I just start over at the beginning of that? Please, please do. Yes. <laughs> okay. Um, so little, you know, a little disability work around there. Um, that I uh, speakerphone works better for me, just in terms of uh, uh, my mobility impairments and holding the phone. But I'll make it work. Um, I was saying that. I am a person with multiple disabilities. So in saying that I do sexuality work with folks with disabilities, that includes myself. And um, so that's the huge, you know, foundational to my lived experience. Um, Mm -hmm. And before I did sexuality work, I worked in a number of different nonprofits and government agencies to do empowerment and social justice organizing with peers with disabilities. Um, Mm -hmm. So now doing sexuality work is, um, I mean, it's multi-level. People with disabilities are often denied their sexuality um, by the way that they're viewed and assumptions that get made about us, people with disabilities. Right. Um, And then uh, just uh, either physical pain or uh, mental health issues that make sexuality different. There's just a whole host of um, different reasons why uh, sexuality and um, even accessing just one's personal feelings of being a sensual being are, are, um, can be problematic for people with disabilities. Mm-hmm. And so is it okay if I ask you a little bit about your personal story? Like how did you get to be where you were empowered enough to accept yourself fully and then be able to teach other people to do the same? Can you tell us a little bit about your journey? Yeah, so I, um, you know, it's still very much a work in progress as as anybody's of life. Of course, is. we all are, um, yes. <laughs> um. So I grew up in uh, the Tampa Bay area of Florida, and um, I, um, you know, I just always knew that I uh, needed to get away and travel and explore, Um, and uh, luckily I um, 
managed to go to graduate school in San Francisco, which uh, the San Francisco Bay Area is, you know, really been the cradle of the disability rights movement. But mm. it was somewhat of a happy accident. I didn't, I didn't know uh, anything about disability rights or even really identified as a person with a disability. I just happened to go to graduate school in San Francisco. Um, well, I should say I just happened. Um, San Francisco is, the San Francisco Bay Area is far more accessible for people with disabilities than the average metropolitan, than any other metropolitan area probably in the U.S. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So because I had some physical freedom there, that's where I went. That's where I could live independently. And and then mm-hmm. it was, you know, once I got there to art school there, that then I began to learn to feel empowered as a person with a disability. Mhm. And so it uh, was mostly from being living in a in an area where there was so much support and so much um accessibility. Yes. Yeah, um I I ran into that I would have had that evolution if I had not uh, gone out to San Francisco. Um mm-hmm. And it's still, I now live back in Florida for the majority of the time and, and still see that there's so much work to be done in, in other parts of the country. Right. And so what kind of inner process have you gone through to feel empowered enough to be able to help other people? Because I can imagine the way society has like certain judgments about people with disabilities or and I have friends with chronic pain uh, as well and also friends with disabilities. Um, and, and I know it's, it takes a bold person to take a stand for your right to pleasure. So I'm just wondering if you can share a little bit more about your inner process of how you got to a place where you're a leader in this area. Yeah, so, um, you know, it was a, a winding road. So I've, you know, I've always been a very sexual person, um, and I've always, you know, really thrived on um, the power of touch. And though for many years, I mean, I didn't begin to date or have any kind of intimacy with anyone until I was in my mid twenties. So it, it took a long time. Um, for lack of um, access, really, to a sexuality and to be recognized as a sexual being. Um, And uh, a social worker in San Francisco for many years, um, I just, you know, slowly began to have experiences through the arts community and... um, I'm trying to sum up a very long journey in a short way. But, um, you know, I learned a lot through Internet dating for years and years. I I met, you know, I was a a bit obsessed. I was obsessed with Internet dating because I wanted to make up for lost time Uh and, um, you know, experiment a great deal. And and so I did. Um, And, Again, that was not possible until I moved out to San Francisco. Um, mm-hmm. And then, you know, 
I I had also um, always wanted to be a body worker and, um, you know, like a massage therapist because I had been so aided by massage. I have severe uh, rheumatoid arthritis and a lot of Mm -hmm. musculoskeletal problems that have been aided by massage. Um, And so I was trying to find a way to ritualize my work my uh, desire to be a body worker, um, but, you know, doing massages a very uh, physical work, that was a little hard uh-huh. for me to do. Uh-huh. Um, so I started to put together what I had learned as a social worker, um, some certifications I had taken in body work, massage and therapeutic touch, um, a lot that I had just come to learn from doing a lot of experiments in internet dating and alternative relationships um, and, you know, have, have built this identity and this um, brand as an intimacy coach in that way. Mm-hmm. Excellent. Well, good for you. And what kind of performing, you said you have been a, a performance artist before, what kind of performing have you done? You know, a, a big revolution for me was working with the um, disability dance community in the San Francisco mm. Bay Area. Um, mm-hmm. And so I don't know if you're familiar with Axis Dance or Dandelion Dance Theater. I don't know the names, um, but I have seen uh, I have seen some uh, some groups like that. I'm just not sure what their names were. Yeah. yeah, so very, very beautiful and, and at the, you know, very um, postmodern mm-hmm. dance where um, all movement is dance and um, mm-hmm. not necessarily the most virtuosic movement or the most physically, um, uh you know, athletic bodies are dancers, but any any kind of interested, studied, intentional, interesting, studied, intentional movement can be a kind of dance. And so disability mm-hmm. dance in the San Francisco Bay Area really works with those ideas. And, and for instance, access dance travels around the world, uh, globally recognized dance trips. I, I've done work um performing with them um, and and then my own performance artwork at the San Francisco Museum of Modern Art um, and I have a show coming up in the uh, here in Florida the Tampa International Fringe Festival um, would be doing a piece um, that is really audience participation and um, mm-hmm. involves moving together and different kinds of Contact and intimacy in a really um, close, you know, maybe 20-person room. Excellent. Good for you. Well, thank you for doing that work. It's so necessary, and I'm really happy to see that you are helping other people as well. So let's move on to talking about open relationship. (laughs) Um, You had talked about uh, when we were preparing to have you on the show you talked about some of your grievances with open relationship in the South um, or something like that. I forgot what, what you were saying, but tell me what, 
what some of your issues have been with um, with being a, a non-monogamous person in Florida. <laughs> um, there's just, you know, uh, more limited opportunities, uh, just smaller uh, pool to draw from in terms of people who are interested in um, ethical non-monogamy or polyamory. Um, so, um, yeah, just a much more limited pool of um, folks who are interested. And oftentimes things get mushed together. So everybody who's interested in, you know, kink and BDSM and non-monogamy and swingers, and they're all, all together in a very small group. You know, and and so it's hard to get the kind of nuance and um, particularity you would like to find in um, things. Just get sort of I don't I don't uh, mush together for lack of a better word. Yeah, so. that that reminds. Yeah, I re- I remember now we talked about that that um, any anything alternative just goes into one kind of. Uh, group and that's not necessarily what you're looking for so yeah yeah I can imagine that would be frustrating (laughs) yeah yeah Yeah. and you and you introduced you wanted me to introduce you by saying you're in an open relationship with the Tampa Bay area and the San Francisco Bay area so is there something more to that than the obvious where you think of yourself as being in relationship with an area or um, a whole town well, I think it's interesting um, that when we think of um, areas or towns or the place we live as being a kind of partner in terms of what gives you resources and a foundation and supports a lifestyle, um, and um, you know neither neither San Francisco or the Tampa Bay could do that in and of themselves for me. I would have happily stayed on living in the San Francisco Bay Area forever, but as we know, there's this very expensive place to live. There's many difficulties in continuing to live there, especially if you're not from there. Um, right. And uh, while it was a very liberated place for people with disabilities, Still, people with disabilities generally tend to have lower incomes, cannot work mm-hmm. as much. So it's you know there's a catch twenty two there, and it was hard to maintain um, a sustainable life there. Uh, mm-hmm. Also, in my case, with the kind of disability I have, I, I needed a warmer, milder weather, which is mm-hmm. which is Florida. So. Mm-hmm. Um, I had to leave and come back to be closer to family and a warmer climate. Um, But uh, I can't stay in Florida all the time either. I need, I keep coming back to the Bay area as much as I can. I have many friends there, you know, dear friends who are like family and many of my work opportunities are there. Um, So it's, you know, I think that sort of the, kind of culture we're coming into now, it's um, not always possible to be who you need to be if if you um if you have to stay stuck in stuck in place. Um 
So in as much as I can, I try to make it mm-hmm. back out to the Bay Area. And luckily, I can have lots of clients over Skype, so I can, I can make my life exist in a sort of minimal space between San Francisco and the Tampa Bay Area. Excellent. So if you're just joining us, you're listening to Leading Edge Love Radio, and this is your host, Sumati Sparks, the open relationship coach at sumatisparks.com. We're speaking with Amber DiPietra. Am I pronouncing your name right? DiPietra? Yes. Okay. Um, about um, the intersection of sexuality and disabilities and chronic pain, and also the challenges of living an alternative relationship style in the South or in parts of the country or parts of the world that that aren't as open to that. Um, so how, how have you been able to meet people um, when there aren't as many opportunities? Have you developed any tricks? Or are you going outside the non-monogamous community and then trying to convert people? <laughs> or like, just I, I'm jokingly using that word. Um, I know sometimes I've met people and explained non-monogamy to them and they've been willing to try it. I'm just wondering what kind of um, ways you've managed to to meet people in that climate. Yeah, you know, it's it's difficult. Um, it's, I mean, and I have a lot of, you know, intersectional oppressions going on with not just the challenge of having a healthy, uh, ethical, non-monogamous life in the in the Tampa Bay Area, but also uh, being um, a sex worker and I'm a Mm -hmm. person with a disability. And so, you know, I'm I'm a rare bird here in this country. Mm -hmm. Um, So trying to navigate all of that is is quite difficult. Um, You know, I'm usually just as upfront as I can be on dating apps because there's really mm-hmm. I I can't be anything else besides radically honest. Mm-hmm. Um so there's there's no dissembling isn't even an option. Um mm-hmm. and yeah, you know, honestly I'm I'm just wrapping up a, a long term open relationship that I was in and um hoping to invite some new energy in and I'm just sort of in a quiet space with that right now. Mhm. Right. Okay, that's always good to have that pause between relationships. Kind of reconnect with yourself again. Yeah. So so let's talk a little bit more about your work. Um so you're doing sexological body work. So for people who haven't heard of that before, can you describe what that is? So sexological body work um, was created by Joseph Kramer, who is a San Francisco Bay Area person. Um, during the uh, height of the AIDS crisis, he was really looking for a way for a safe way for people to get some very necessary revitalizing erotic touch. Um, So he basically created a type of erotic massage known as sexological body work. And it, you know, it works a lot on 
helping people who have had trauma or have had to keep their bodies isolated, um, not been able to engage in sex, um, to reconnect with their bodies through the help of a hands-on practitioner um, in a very um, professional, boundaried way. Um, So, yes, I trained um, at the time the certification program was offered there in San Francisco at the um, Institute of, um, I always get it wrong, the Institute of Advanced Studies of Human Sexuality. Um, And since then, I think the training has moved to L.A., and there's also a Canadian component as well. Mm Mm-hmm. Now, was Joseph Kramer also the um, creator of the Body Electric, or was that someone different? Yeah, so that is that is Joseph, and Joseph still runs his practice, I believe, in Oakland. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I remember when that started, and it was mostly for men, but then it expanded to include everyone. Yes, yes. Cool. So what would what would a typical session look like for you, um, like if you had your ideal client on your table? So, um, you know, often we don't even begin on the table um, because that, that can be very intimate and vulnerable. Um, often we just begin, you know, sitting at my kitchen table, having a cup of tea or Mm-hmm. Um, cookies or whatever, and just you know, I it's a case by case basis, and um, the ideal client is someone who's going to um, trust themselves enough to you know let me know what they need, and and you know if they can let me in just a little bit and letting me know what they need, then I'm very good at picking up cues, and I'll say you know. Um, um, you know, I, I might say, let's just, you know, let's just sit here and, and talk for the duration of this first session and get to know each other. Um, because some, many people are very frightened by this work. Um, mm-hmm. And so sometimes we're just, you know, and then we'll put down our teacups and we'll do some breathing exercises together. And I'll lead them in a guided meditation do some um, body scanning work with them and um, kind of create a little uh, document together. You know, maybe they're doing all the talking, but I'm taking notes for them of um, helping them set their intention. What's their history? What brought them to this work? Tell me some things about your body. You know, ask very specific questions to try to get a good sense of where someone is at with how they're experiencing life inside their particular body Um, so that we can set intentions very, very clearly and, and, you know, start to form a common language about how they, and then as Mm -hmm. it moves on, then we'll get on the table and do some, you know, light, gentle massage, therapeutic massage, and some more guided meditation um, and uh, more uh, exploring the way that their imagination works by doing 
light and color exercises, asking them to visualize certain things. And based on what they tell me, then I start to understand more about what it feels like in their skin. And we sort of go from there. Mm-hmm. Beautiful. And so if somebody who wanted to move into ethical non-monogamy in their life and they're new to that, um, if they came to you, could you help somebody with the types of issues that come up when people are new to open relationship and, and what would that look like? Yeah, I do deal with that with some of my clients. Um, and, you know, so like I was saying about um, living in the Tampa Bay area in Florida, um, those ideas are still fairly new to a lot of people. Um, mm-hmm. And so I do a great deal of just education about what the options are, um, you know, and defining terms. Um, I tend to, you know, the culture here in the Tampa Bay area tends to look more, uh, tend to be more familiar with what swingers are versus anything mm-hmm. else, you know. So I do mm-hmm. right. a large education piece on on how that's different than an open relationship versus ethical non-monogamy versus polyamorous. And I recommend books and articles and, you know, understand what they do know and then elaborate and point to different things, uh, documentaries that they might want to watch. And so, you know, Mm -hmm. help them guide them in some self-study there. Mm -hmm. And are there ways that, um, the issues around non-monogamy show up in their body, um, maybe triggering past traumas or issues around jealousy, things like that? I think that, um, you know, it's an interesting question. I tend to, I, w- I was listening to a talk you did with um, Celeste and Danielle um, today and um, Mm -hmm. talking about individuals that are in tough spots because um, they are, you know, maybe stuck in a marriage where there's, there's no sex and there's no option for having sex anymore. Um, And, and they feel quite desperate and trapped. Um, But, uh, there might be many reasons why they can't speak with their partner about that, honestly. So I tend uh-huh. to be on that that side of it where I'm, you know, the the person's come to me sort of in desperation around that issue. Um, and um, and there's a lot of hurt there by what, you know, about why their partner has shut them out or, no longer uh-huh. wants to have a sexual relationship with them. Um, you know, I, I have someone coming to me now where I think she just needs permission to grieve that her husband's no longer interested in having sex with her and that uh-huh. a healing's going to happen when she can just be witnessed in that grief and have help holding the space. Mm. Um, now, where she's going to go from there... I don't know, and I can't, you know, I can't. It's not up to me to say for her. But I, mm-hmm. you know, can educate her um, on, you know, some people choose to open up their marriage. And, and I can mm-hmm. educate her on 
all the different things that people look at when they're in her situation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, I've found it to be a very common thing, and I jokingly call it the epidemic of long-term monogamy <laughs> because yeah. there, there do seem to be, uh, and it's almost kind of a norm in our culture where you'll see jokes about it on television like, oh, you're married so you're not having any sex. It's kind of a given that if somebody's been married for a long time that they're not having sex. So um, I think that we all need to help people like that with what their options are. So if somebody came to you, what what would you share with them um, around what their options would be? You know, um, well, like I said, I, you know, I can usually give them examples of um, friends and colleagues and other clients I've worked with who have chosen different relationship styles to deal uh-huh. with, you know, um, the mismatched desire issue, right? Uh-huh. So, um, right. and um, again, recommend things for them to read. But um, usually I find that those concepts are so foreign and so new to people that they're not going to get at it with their rational mind. They're they're going to have to do the work through the spirit that's in their body. And, and so, um, you know, a big part of sexological body work is um, based around our relationship to masturbation. And so um, a lot of times, Folks who are in marriages where there's no sex anymore, they also have stopped masturbating, so they're not they're not accessing themselves as a sexual person at all. They've sort of seen it as the ultimate rejection that their husband or their wife doesn't want to have sex anymore, and they also aren't um, giving themselves pleasure. So if I can help them around winding a path back towards their own pleasure and their own sensuality and masturbation, then I feel like a lot of um, insight comes through that towards what they need to do with their relationship. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, I love what you said about the rational mind often can't wrap, wrap around the idea of non-monogamy. So it totally makes sense to have them reconnect with their body and find the spiritual wisdom that way. That's beautiful. I love that you said that. <laughs> Thanks. Yeah. So um, what other kind of projects are you working on or what, what kind of things are you do you have on your plate in the future? So um, currently I really privilege to have uh, gotten in with a group of women who are um, a lot of uh, uh, nonprofit, Planned Parenthood, um, LGBTQ organizations, as well as, um, there was another one, oh, a lot of uh, really progressive public health folks um, who are all working on a collaborative to um, make changes to comprehensive sex ed in the um, in the local school system here in uh, the Tampa Bay area in, in St. Petersburg. 
specifically. Uh-huh. So, uh, you know, that's just core work that starts with with youth and children and the, their understanding of their sexuality and their bodies. So I, I feel really excited to be a part of um, this collaborative. Excellent. Yeah, I interviewed uh, a woman named J.D., Jen Devine, who has a uh, business teaching sex, sex education to students. And California has really strong laws, um, really progressive laws around sex ed, sex ed in schools. Um, what's it like in Florida? Yeah, so it's probably pretty as far from, you know, as much opposite as from that as you can go. So, um, <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah. Um, so it's abstinence-only education. You know, um, mm. there, I believe, um, you know, and I'm still learning because I'm mostly working with adults, and so I haven't even checked in with how the policy works in schools right now. And I, I've just began to learn, but, um, abstinence only, um, until marriage, which is a fairly hetero based, um, programming. Um, and then of course my particular interest is in, um, so if the curriculum is rewritten, revised, made a, just you know, 20% more progressive, then also uh, what about children with disabilities? Are they getting access to sex education or are they being left out? Mm-hmm. Because that is often the case that they are. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. that's right. my specific area. You know, one of the subcommittees I'll be heading up. Right. Good for you. That's excellent. Cool. Any other projects? Yeah, so um, I um, I will have the uh, the debut of my solo show, which is called The Opposite of Evolution Dance Studio at the mm. Tampa Fringe Festival on May 3rd. Um, and I hope to be also bringing it to the San Francisco Bay Area. I'm going to come and be there for a few weeks in July to do to work with a um, Bay Area performance artist named Mary Armentrout. She has she's also a Feldenkrais teacher and mm-hmm. she has an amazing performance art uh, compound in Richmond called the Milk Bar and she does a summer mm-hmm. workshop intensive every July so I'm very excited to get out to my San Francisco home and do some work with her. Excellent. Good for you. You'll have to let us know when the the dates are. I'll put it on my on my show at that time. Yeah, for sure. That would be lovely. Cool. Um, and I should mention that doing a lot of organizing for I run a, the Tampa Bay chapter of. Uh, Sex Workers Outreach Project. The Sex Workers Outreach Project is a national nonprofit that does human rights and harm reduction work for sex workers across the country. And I run the Tampa Bay chapter. Um, And so chapters all over the country are doing tons of uh, uh, organizing right now under uh, major 
laws that are um, really affecting sex workers' uh, ability to advertise safely and network safely online. Um, mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah. Um, so, definitely. yeah, the, I've heard the, the SESTA and FOSTA laws. Um, yeah. Are those laws affecting sexological body work as well? You know, that's a good question. Um, I... I um, need to look at that. I mean, I suppose we all need to organize around and look at that. Primarily, I've just been looking as uh, for sex workers, but I think um, I think it mostly affect affects a lot of the websites that you use to advertise on. So, have yes. you been um, advertising on other websites or just your own? Yeah, so I mainly advertise on my own. Um, there is the International Directory of Sexological Body Workers, and I'll have to look into that. It's a good question. Yeah, and so it could affect even places like Facebook and Twitter for somebody like you who is actually a certified sexological body worker and you've learned all these safety precautions and um, you know how to be very clinical about your work, but in this conservative climate, it could still be um, interpreted as, um, like, for example, Facebook might not allow anybody to advertise that or Twitter because they could be sued if one of your clients finds you on their platform and then makes a claim that you harm them in some way, whether it was true or not and goes after the website where they found you. Yeah. So I could imagine even even those large. Yeah. 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 Go ahead. You were saying. Yeah. So it's holding websites liable um, for anything that the the act, it's called Stop Enabling a sex trafficking act and it's a very vague law in which many many things that have nothing to do with human slavery uh, slavery that are consensual work of sexuality professionals but under this law can be conflated with human trafficking mm-hmm. um, so right. yeah and of course we know it doesn't really do anything to stop real trafficking no, not at all. And and you know the 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 bad people who are trafficking folks, they're just you know going to be harder to track because mm-hmm. there's going to be no, they're not. Um, you know, the internet creates a paper trail where people police each other. You know, in in a good way, you create networks of safety, but. Um, Without websites like that, it'll be harder to spot and help actual trafficking victims. Mm-hmm. Right. It doesn't make any sense at all. Unless yeah. you look at the extreme conservative climate of the current administration, and then it makes perfect sense. <laughs> yeah. Yes. So. Yeah. Well, we'll all just keep supporting each other and trying to survive this climate until things change. Yes. Yeah. 
Okay, well, is there anything else you'd like to add, Amber? We're, um, we've run through our topics, and uh, is there anything else you'd like to add about your work, about the intersection of sexuality and disability, about performance, about your coaching? Yeah, no, I, um, you know, for anybody who has listened to the show, I'm offering 20% off their first session with me, and that, you know, so from San Francisco area listeners, I do Skype sessions, and it would be 20, um, 20% off our first session together. And um, if any folks... And how can, how can people find you? Mm-hmm. So my website is thebodypoetic, with a K, um, dot com, and... Um, or you can uh, email me at amberdipietra at gmail.com. DiPietra is D-I-P-I-E-T-R-A. And I'm also on Twitter at the Body Poetic with a K. Um, and so I do get to San Francisco Bay Area often. So what I would do is work with folks, you know, for a number of times, maybe over Skype or FaceTime. And then I would come and do intensive where I work with them several times over the course of a week or 10 days. and So that's usually how I, I work with my San Francisco Bay Area clients. Excellent. Cool. So people could contact you and you're planning on coming out in June, did you say, or July? I'm planning on coming out in July, although if someone wants to set something up with me sooner, then we can definitely work something out. Okay. Excellent. Okay, Amber. Well, thank you so much for being on the show. It was really delightful to get to know you better, and I really appreciate the work you're doing in the world. Keep it up. Thank you. Okay, we'll talk to you later. Bye-bye. Okay, you Leading Edge Love listeners, please come back next week at same time, 6 p.m. Pacific time to Leading Edge Love Radio. We'll be speaking with Ariel Giaretto, who is a uh, a therapist trained in helping people with somatic trauma. And she's going to be talking about the various kinds of attachment styles that people have and how that relates to trauma in your body and how to heal that. So she's got tons of experience. She travels around the world teaching uh, somatic healing. And we're really blessed to have her on the show next week. So that will be April 17th. Uh, 6 p.m. Pacific time. We'll see you there. Have a good evening. Hey, guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun, too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.